welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, we have a perfect show today for, um, if you're listening to it live, we have a perfect show today for the uh, end of 2022 and the beginning of 2023, because it's a very inspirational show, a very inspirational guest, and um, we certainly need um, a lot of inspiration these days. There are so many things in the world that seem to be fighting against us, that if we have dreams and even philosophies and principles and so on, um, there... (laughs) It's you have to push through um, a lot of opposition to uh, follow your dreams and to to get your principles uh, heard. So my guest today is Jennifer Say. She is the author of Levi's Unbuttoned, sexy title actually. <laughs> Levi's Unbuttoned: The Woke Mob Took My Job But Gave Me My Voice. And uh, welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thank you. I'm excited to talk to you. Well, um, before we get into that, and of course the whole, well, actually, I was going to say before the, we get into the whole inspirational part, but really your life from the beginning has been inspirational just in a different way. You know, um, Jennifer, um, before she worked for Levi's and rose in the Levi's uh, Corporation, um She was the 1986 USA Gymnastics National Champion and a seven-time member of the U.S. Women's National Team. And she wrote a memoir before the current book called Chalked Up. And that was released in 2008. And it had to do with the coaching cruelty inflicted on children in the sport of gymnastics. She also produced a 2020 Emmy Award-winning documentary called Athlete A!, which connected the crimes of Larry Nassar to broader abuses in the Olympic mu- movement. Now, I, I, I'd like to ask you about that. I want to just first make the point that, you know, it's so interesting. Um, you were, you were the, the president of the Levi's brand, and you were on track to be the first CEO of Levi Strauss and Company. Um, but what's, what I find interesting as a psychiatrist is that uh, you already had achieved such tremendous, uh, made such a tre- tremendous achievements already in your career um, as a gymnast. And why I think that's so important to talk about a bit is that today, or you know, always really, the people who have gone on to do important things are the people who, as a child, you know, were encouraged to pursue, um, uh, you know, achievements, whether it's gymnastics or whatever it is, but just to um, to work for excellence and to go against the things, the obstacles and so on when they're children. And then they, they get on a path to do what you were doing um, later in life in terms of Levi's. So why don't we talk a little bit about your, your, your first life as, a, uh, as an athlete? Yeah. I mean, I started gymnastics when I was about six years old. It was the 70s. There weren't a lot of sports available to young girls. It was only a few years after Title IX. Um, 
And Nadia broke onto the scene in the 1976 Olympics. And she was a child. She was only 14. And girls across America fell in love with her. And gyms popped up all over the country. And I begged my mom. I wanted to go to a gym and do gymnastics. And I loved it. I mean, I'm sure you've watched the sport. It's beautiful. It's incredibly fun when you're a child. Uh, But I quickly, you know, I was ambitious and somewhat competitive and I loved it and I worked really hard and I quickly sort of moved up the ranks and I made my first national team when I was only 10 years old. It's a very young sport. It's considered to have a very narrow window of opportunity, which creates all sorts of problems, as you might imagine, because you're kind of racing against the clock. So what ends up happening is you overtrain, you come back when you have injuries before letting them fully heal. There's all sorts of weirdness about weight, you know, anorexia is encouraged in many ways. Um, But I, you know, scaled the heights. I was on the national team, as you said, for seven years, I kept begging my parents to go to better gyms with more sort of accomplished, higher ranking athletes. And the gym that I spent the later part of my career in was one of the best in the country at the time and still probably is, but the culture was incredibly cruel and abusive. Um, I trained on a broken ankle for two full years at the end of my career and pain really wears on a person's psyche, as I'm I'm sure you're aware. Um, I became anorexic. We were told to lose weight by any means necessary. We were fat shamed and weighed in two, sometimes three times a day, forced to do insane amounts of extra conditioning if we gained a quarter of a pound. Um, You know, the emotional and the physical abuse was, I mean, the names we were called, you know, I was a lazy piece of garbage on my seventh hour of practice on 200 calories. And we were children, you know. And so even though I achieved a ton, um, I left the sport quite broken, you know, emotionally battered, um, had a pretty severe eating disorder, had this mangled ankle that I didn't realize would hamper me for the rest of my life. You know, I thought I was training on something that was painful, but that as soon as I walked out of the gym, it would be fine. And that's not the case. Um, as you might imagine, you do permanent harm. Um, and the abuse does, does I, I don't want to call it permanent harm because I've done a lot of work and, I've, um, and I'm, I'm okay now. Um, but I found that 20 years later, I was still really suffering. You know, when you're told that you are basically a piece of crap as a kid and you're, you know, you're told you're lazy and you're working eight hours a day and you're told you're fat and you weigh 97 pounds and you're 18 years old, you internalize that and you feel that about yourself. Uh Um, And so you feel everything's your fault. Um, It's, you know, a a very good therapist once said to me, and it finally was like a light bulb moment. It's like an abused child. When a parent hits a child, they tell the child it's their fault. And so the Uh child thinks everything is their fault. I was still doing that to myself in my late 30s. Um, But with the help of a great therapist, I was able to overcome it. And in fact, writing the book, um, you know, which came out, I think, 2008. So I was in my early 40s, um, really was a healing, healing process for me. And it was really the first first person account of the cruelty in the sports. And it was not well received by the people in the sport. I sort of exposed all the physical and emotional abuse along with the joy that I felt in the in the early days. And I talked about the sexual abuse that was rampant in the sport, even though I was not sexually abused. I was around it all the time. We huh. weren't to speak of it, which has its own um, sort of impact on a child, right? When you know that the national team coach that you're sent around the world with is sexually assaulting other athletes on the national team and you're supposed to just stay quiet about it, you come to feel like, well, we don't matter. 
So oh, wait, so this is before Larry Nasser? There were people uh, sexually abusing the girls? Lots. Huh. Larry Nasser is the inevitable outcropping of a, of a culture that allows for the abuse of children. You know, I knew nothing of Nasser, although he was already had abused many, many children when I had written my book. Um, and here's the, the weird part. When my book came out, I was really, it was sort of my first experience with being canceled. This was before me too. And I was, uh, we, we weren't supposed to believe all women. And so I was this liar. I was a grifter and a terrible gymnast. And I wanted to take these people down and make a buck. Um, meanwhile, I had, a, I was already a vice president at Levi's. Like I didn't need the paltry, you know, amount of money um, <laughs> that I, that I got from the book. If you're, if you're not a well-known person, you're not real. you know, it's a lot of work and not a lot of money, but I felt compelled to tell the story. And ultimately over the course of the next 10 years, between 2008 and 2018, when Larry Nasser was ultimately convicted, everything became clear that this culture was rife with abuse, that the leaders in the sport, both at USA Gymnastics, at the U.S. Olympic Committee, at the clubs on the ga- on the ground, were enabling it in a sense by ignoring it and suppressing it, and you weren't permitted to speak out. Investigations were not done when it was reported. I mean, people often say about Nasser, why didn't you know in the beginning when per- people first came out? If this happened so many years ago, as they always say to victims of sexual assault, why didn't you say something before? Well, in fact, young girls started coming forward in 1997, and they were told. They came forward to the police. They came forward to USA Gymnastics, eventually in 2015 to the FBI, and no one did anything. They just, the strong message was sent that they didn't matter. And so, you know, my book was really the first first person account of this. And eventually everybody came around because the Nasser story broke the whole thing wide open. And what was clear from Nasser was he abused for 30 years. But the leaders at USAG knew what he was doing. They sent him around the world with these young girls, minors, um, and they didn't care. You know, they didn't want to tarnish the sport's reputation, which is dependent on these cute little pixies dancing around. That's how they get sponsorship dollars. You don't want to think about their suffering. Huh. So did anybody else um, uh, after NASA or during NASA, because I haven't heard of any other uh, people I can, who abused, did they get uh, convicted well, or charged or something? So one notable person who I wrote about in my book, his name is Don Peters. He was a coach of the 1984 Olympic team, the coach. He was very well regarded throughout the 70s and 80s. He, um, I knew this for a fact because it was happened to a, my best friend who I went to, to college with. He raped her when she was a teenager. Um, and eventually, as a, at, at least in part as a result of my book, a few women came forward and he was ultimately banned from the sport. Now, he was never criminally charged because of statutes of limitation, oh, yes. but he is banned from the sport. Um, another coach, John Geddert, who had coached many Olympians, um, he was actually arrested and he killed himself on, on, on the way to turning himself in. There have been many, many others, many notable abusers in the sport. Do you think um, that uh, gymnasts, that this happens more to female gymnasts than females in other sports? Because as you were saying, that they are pixie-like and, and you know, wear these cute little outfits. And, yeah. I and, used uh, to think that. I used to think that there was a preponderance, sort of a, a greater percentage. And, you know, I will say on my gym, the last one I, I trained in, I think two of the 10 staff members 
were sexually abusing children. That's a pretty high percentage, if you ask me, right? That's 20%. Um, And it was known. We all talked about it. We whispered about it. You knew to stay away from them. Um, I don't know that I think that anymore because there has been so much that's come out about other sports. There's a very, there's a, there's a, um, there's a problem in swimming. Um, there are problems in track and field. I think individual sports invite it in a weird way more than team no, sports. I'm not sure why. Um, I think there's a really intense relationship with the coach in individual sports. You travel alone with your coach. Um, do these men seek, seek it out? I mean, I, personally believe Nasser sought it out and he became the trainer for, and then the doctor for USA gymnastics unpaid so that he would have access. Um, And in in turn, he, in turn, he also did what USAG wanted. He sent the girls back out on the floor when they were injured um, and he was granted, you know, they looked the other way. There were rumors for three decades that he was abusing athletes. He's, he's abused over 500 uh, young girls and women. Wow. Um, I mean, I know that what my sport is, um, I ride horses competitively. There is and, some in them. Um, yeah. And with just, a, I guess, maybe the, in the past two or three years, they instituted something called safe sport. And before you can compete, um, you have to, <laughs> every year, it's kind of a, I mean, I guess it's good, but um, you have to complete this course, you're an online yeah. course to show that you know um, you know, and some people have, there have been trainers that have been affected by that. Uh, I don't know how prevalent it is, but I know that it has, you know, that enough to, for, for them to make this safe sport, uh, course, but, um, and, and safe sports across the sports, just so you know, it's, oh, uh, uh, it is, a, it's across all the sports. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, and, I yeah. mean, there, there is a very, um, I guess to some extent, no matter what sport, especially when it's one-on-one. Um, there is a very intense relationship when, especially the higher you go, there is a very intense relationship with your coach. You know, you, you are very dependent upon them. You want them to like you and think that you're working hard and all of this. Um, and you push yourself so far when you're in these vulnerable positions and so on, you're dependent upon them. So, and I think in gymnastics, I can't speak for the other sports necessarily, but the emotional and physical abuse that I described, I think it's really disorienting for a child, as you might imagine. They come to see that as normalized. They come to see it as normal that they don't have a voice and that they can't say when something makes them uncomfortable. And I think this sort of is almost like grooming or it it, 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 it makes the child more vulnerable to sexual abuse. They, they are not told to speak up. In fact, you're told never speak up, you know, obedience is kind of the most critical value instilled. And so I think for that reason, the sexual abuse is more prevalent. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we, I just got the uh, sign that there is four minutes to break. Um, so we can't start a new, this is so interesting though. We can't start a new, <laughs> new topic. So when we come back, we will get to the topic of your book and the topic of wokeness in general and how um, how important it is for people, talking about speaking up, how important it is for people to speak up uh, before our country is totally, doesn't exist anymore. Um, yeah, if I could um, add something uh, in terms of gymnastics, because I do include a chapter in this new book on gymnastics, because oh, yes. I think it's really, even though I have a whole other book about it, I think it's important 
important. First of all, I came from a deficit, right? I came from this culture where obedience was beaten into me almost literally. And I've been able to, to overcome that. And I have found that upholding my own values is the only thing that heals you and, and sets you free. It sounds a little corny, but it's true. And, you know, the second book, I, I hope is an exhortation or gives people a little bit of courage because we've all got to do it. Really bad things happen in the shadows. You know, if we had been able to speak up in the sport, these abusers would not have been able to get away with it. Yes, yes. That's interesting because that experience, earlier experience made you that much more uh, intent upon using your voice, speaking, you know, even even though you sacrificed a lot. I want to talk about that, too. When, um, when, we come, when we come back, we're going to talk about the book and about wokeness and about having to speak up. And um, also, I want you to mention, uh, while we're discussing it, um, the what you what you gave up when you get to the part about I will <laughs> what exactly how much you sacrificed for well certainly it was worth it but I mean how much you how important it was to you to have your voice that you were willing to sacrifice millions of dollars <laughs> I'll just <laughs> drop that little hint all right yeah. well we need to take a break my guest again is Jennifer Say the book that we um, that we're talking about today for the primarily now we're going to. Uh, Levi's Unbuttoned, The Woke Mob Took My Job But Gave Me My Voice. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Follow the Voice America Variety Channel on Twitter. Our hosts always have something to say, and we know that you do too. We tweet on today's hot topics, and you're welcome to follow us. Speak up and join in at Voice AM Variety. That's at Voice AM Variety. 
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com welcome back to dr carol's couch if you have a question or comment for dr carol dial toll free at 1-866-472-5788 now back to the show here's dr carol lieberman and welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with you today about uh, one woman's brave fight against the woke mob. And that woman happens to be Jennifer Say, and her book is called Levi's Unbuttoned, The Woke Mob Took My Job But Gave Me My Voice. So, Jennifer, now let's go on to the next story of of your li- next chapter, I guess, or chapters of your life and tell us about this. Yeah, sure. I, I would add, you know, I think what you said in the upfront about sports is mostly true. I really am a strong believer in youth athletics. I think you learn resilience. I think you learn mastery. You know, if you work really hard at something, you can learn how to do it, even if you can't do it at the beginning. I am still such a huge believer in those. And I just find it really tragic and sad that all of that can be kind of thrown out when the cultures become so abusive. And I ended up, you know, spending 20 years recovering from it. But the resilience and the ability to persist remains. And I think that I've carried the good stuff forward with me, Uh if you see what I mean. Um, So I went on, I I left the sport, um, sadly, kind of broken and ashamed and feeling like a failure despite my accomplishments. And it took me a while to recover from that. I went on to college and ultimately moved to San Francisco. And I had had such a strange childhood um, that I felt always like a weirdo. You know, I was like the weird kid. I, you know, I looked 12 when I was 18. Like, I always just felt strange. And so San Francisco was like the home of the weirdos. It was awesome. I loved it. It was like anyone who ever felt like an outsider or weird. And this is relevant to the story because I ended up living there over 30 years and I loved it. I embraced it for that because I felt it embraced difference. Uh You know, Um, that is not the case anymore. I will just say that. (laughs) Um, Eventually by 1999, which was uh, maybe seven years after I graduated from college, I'd had a few jobs here and there, but I started at Levi's in 1999 at a low level position, sort of an entry level marketing assistant. And I, worked my way all the way up the ladder. I became the chief marketing officer in uh, 2013, and I held that job for eight years, which is very unusual. It's a slippery seat, as we say, in corporate America. And I think the average tenure is is two years, and then you get fired or quit because you see the writing on the wall. Um, And then ultimately, in 2020, I was promoted to brand president, and I was told, you know, you're on the path to CEO, and you could be the first female CEO of the company. But here's the twist. In early 2020, I started speaking out um, right from the beginning about the harms that would be done to children from these prolonged school closures due to the pandemic. My children, I have four children, all public school kids, which was unusual for my level. Every single one of my peers and up, down, sideways, everyone sent their kids to private schools, which did open in the fall of 2020. And yet I was still told, you have to stop talking about this. This goes against public health. It's wrong. And I said, but we say we care about equality. This is harming low-income children. This is harming Black children who are disproportionately in the public schools. 50,000 children in San Francisco public schools, 60% of whom are low-income children, were out of school for over 18 months. Playgrounds were closed 
for over eight months. Um, children were targeted and demonized and vilified and every restriction, it was more onerous for children. It's They still are. It's insane. I don't understand the obsession with kids. They bring masks back in school in Philadelphia. That's where I came from. I, I was born in Philadelphia. Masks are back in schools now in Philadelphia. They're not back in bars or sports venues mm-hmm. with 60,000 people. It doesn't make sense to me. And I think because, at least in part, of the abuse that I suffered as a, a child in the sport, I know the children won't stand up for themselves. They try to please the adults around them. And just because they suffer in silence does not mean they aren't suffering. And you layer on top of that, COVID were never, or children were never at any real risk from COVID. And that data was clear from the very beginning. And so for two full years, I spoke out. I, you know, it started on social media, but ultimately I wrote op-eds and I really advanced my advocacy. I attended school board meetings and I, um, you know, I ended up on a local news news and then ultimately on national news on Fox, which is a key part of the story, which I'll get to. Um, And I was just, you know, told repeatedly over the course of two years, you should stop. And I said, I'm not going to stop. I would say, are you telling me I have to stop? And they would say, no, but you really should stop. You can't say these things. And I would say, but your children are in school. Why can't I have that for my children? More importantly, because my children were okay, they have every advantage, they're, you know, they have tremendous privilege, um, although the isolation was still very difficult. Um, for the, 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 the 50,000 public school children in San Francisco who are home alone, many of them, because their parents might be, you know, hourly wage workers, very young children left home alone, children who depend on school for food and social services. And I, it just seemed so clear to me that these kids were being harmed and that we were sending the strong message to children that they were inessential and that their needs came last. And that was that would be catastrophic for a generation. So ultimately in January, 2022, I was told there was no longer a place for me at the company because of my outspokenness on these matters. I was offered a million dollars in severance, um, which doesn't even compare to what I would have made as CEO. I mean, the current CEO makes $40 million a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not just the million in severance I gave up, but a future as the CEO of a company I loved um, in a culture that I thought I loved, um, but I would have had to sign a non-disclosure agreement if I accepted the severance. And I did not want to do that because I've become, you know, in addition to being concerned about the children, I am even more concerned about the censorship and the illiberalism that have taken over our institutions, the woke mob um, who silences those of us who try to speak the truth. And I wouldn't have any part of it. So I quit very publicly and did not take the money. They must have been shocked. That is such a good, yes, (laughs) because you're the first one that's acknowledged that, um, that I've spoken to. It's so incomprehensible to them that somebody would give up money. Yes. You know, it's like this pact. You know, we present this woke stance. We pretend to care about people, but we do what we want behind the scenes and we take the money for ourselves while presenting this image and everybody believes it, which I still don't understand why they believe it. Um, And I think they thought I was in on that pact, although I'd made it very clear that I was not because despite all the threats in two years, I never stopped. Um, But yeah, I think it was just, I'm confounding to them. It's like I broke this pact that you make with the other wealthy executives. You know, maybe um, this would be a good place to go back a bit 
and talk about um, what you talk about in your book about the woke corporate corporate wokeness, you know, what's happening in America. And then that it's a little easier to, to understand uh, what you're, um, you're quitting yeah. and so on. Yeah. I mean, we've all heard about the wokeness that's taken over college campuses. Well, those kids are graduating and they're coming into the workplace and many of them go into corporate America and, you know, they've grown up with safe spaces and words are violence. And if I'm uncomfortable, it's a grave social injustice. And they demand that, you know, their needs are met and what they want happens. And I think the CEOs are all too happy to adopt. Well, they're afraid of them. First of all, they're afraid of what can happen if they don't do what this very vocal minority is demanding that they do. They don't understand social media, these CEOs. They, and the, the young people are good at it. I'll be honest. You know, they know that with a finger tap, they can mm-hmm. out a senior executive for saying guys in a meeting, which is not an okay <laughs> thing to say. Um, but I think, you know, in the 80s, it was the era of greed being good. Everybody thought corporate leaders were wealthy Republicans, and that was just accepted. That is not the face that corporate leaders want to project to the world anymore. They want to present their, themselves as altruists, as philanthropists. They would have been philanthropists, but they happen to go into business. <laughs> and so it's a big charade, really. They adopt these social justice stances. And I think they also, it's an attempt to capitalize on Gen Z activism, right? If we pretend as a brand we care about this, we'll sell more stuff. But they do start to believe it about themselves because we celebrate corporate leaders in the world today. Think about it, you know, whether it's Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or look at how we celebrated Elizabeth Holmes. I mean, now obviously criminal going to prison or even Sam Bankman Freed, but we are all too sort of eager to believe that they are true heroes. You know, we used to celebrate doctors, right? Now (laughs) Now we celebrate these corporate leaders who it's just the same as it always was. They're just greedy and they want to make a lot of money, but they found this way to wrap it in these causes and be celebrated as heroes. Um, And they do start to believe it about themselves, I think. And anyone that threatens to puncture that facade that they've carefully crafted must be ousted. Now, why COVID became a cause of the woke is something I'm still sort of wrestling with and I don't totally get it. Um, But it became embraced by the left um, as, you know, socially just to stay home, save lives, um, banish anyone who challenged lockdowns, banish anyone who um, advocated for open schools. You know, all of us open schoolers, we were called racist and murderers and teacher killers. And I mean, it was all a lie, but it's a pretty successful way to get other people to be quiet and not join you in the fight because they see what's happening to you and they're like, no, thank you. (laughs) So there's a sort of social censorship that happens because people don't want to be called those terrible names. They don't want to be ostracized. They don't want to lose their friend groups. They'd rather fit in than stand up and do what's right. Uh I realized about myself that that was not me. I was going to do what I thought was right, no matter what I lost. And I lost more than money. Uh Yes, because you dedicated yourself so for years to the company. Um, 23 years at the company, hundreds, if not thousands of colleagues who I would have considered friends. I lost friends in my personal life as well. I have some fractured family relationships. Um, But this, this, 
COVIDianism, as we call it, the anti-lockdowners, it became like a, it, it was embraced with such religious fervor and you could not deviate in any way, shape or form. And frankly, the woke causes, you know, are almost cult-like and you can't deviate from any of them. If you deviate right. from one by saying, hey, maybe lockdowns actually harm the working class. <laughs> maybe we're not helping the people we say we're helping. You are then also assumed to be a racist you are anti-LGBTQ, you are QAnon conspiracy theorist. I spent my whole life on the left. <laughs> I, I, I was a registered Democrat for my entire voting life. I'm not anymore. Um, but you just are vanquished. You know, you, you have to fall in line uh, with the orthodoxy or you are absolutely vilified and left with no friends and no job. <laughs> and of course, it doesn't re really make sense, um, like what you were starting to say just now, that, you know, you would think the, the left would would um, be all for the fact that people who are lower socioeconomic status are deprived of, you know, shouldn't be deprived of going to school while the people who can afford to pay for private schools get their kids to go to school because ultimately... You know, everybody lost um, in one way or another. All the kids lost, but certainly yes. the less privileged kids lost more. Um, I mean, I think schools should have um, made it mandatory for everybody to repeat the year, you know, so that they could at least catch up somewhat on what they lost. Yeah, I mean, look, I personally think the schools never should have closed. The pre-pandemic playbook written in 2006 by the CDC said schools should never be closed more than a few weeks. It's too harmful. Denmark opened their schools after three weeks because they saw that the harms were already happening. Sweden never closed their primary schools. Their outcomes are better uh, yeah. than ours here in the U.S. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think it, it just seemed to me such a grotesque trespass of our stated values on the left, that we care about um, the vulnerable, that we care about the working class, that we care about children, that we care about public schools. Um, I had sent my kids to public school forever because I believe in public schooling as the backbone of our society, although I question it now and I think we need to, uh, you know, revamp it a bit. Um, that it just sort of opened my eyes to all of it because I felt like they don't mean any of it. It's all a lie. It's all you know, a lie. Um, you know, what about that? How old are your children or how how old are they now? Um, I have a wide range. I have a 22-year-old, a 19-year-old, an 8, and a 6-year-old. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so I saw all the different impacts, you know. Uh -huh. um, so I guess particularly with the two youngest, I mean, what do you think? I know this is a little a little side topic, but, um, you know, the things that were being taught are being taught in public schools. I don't know specifically if it was, uh, I would imagine it involves every school. So like the CRT and the, uh, you know, teachers trying to get kids to change their gender and all of this. How were your kids, uh, did your kids have that in their school and how were they affected? <laughs> Well, not, no. I mean, the older ones have sort of graduated beyond right. that. Um, certainly on university campuses, you know, there is a lot of wokeness and censorship. And the youngest children, you know, we moved during COVID. So we moved to Denver and they go to a bilingual school. Um, so they have school in Spanish all day. And I think, you know, when you're a native English speaker and you're trying to learn all your basic subjects in Spanish, there's not a lot of time for that other stuff. So, 
Um, we don't, we don't, we have not experienced it. I know it is out there. Um, but I look, I want my kids to learn to read. I want them to speak another language. I want them to, um, learn math. Um, of course, we view all human beings as deserving of respect and, and dignity and all of these things, but it's all gotten crazy right now, hasn't it? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, it's like the last, I mean, t- COVID uh, coinciding with the George Floyd trial and killing and so on. I mean, it <laughs> made this, this time period, this two year or so time period, um, we're so much changed so quickly and we yeah. were sort of cap- we were literally captive to what was going on. Yeah. I mean, that was kind of what brought it all home for me in the summer of 2020. We'd all been locked in our homes for many, many months. People were desperate to get out. You know, why hadn't they taken to the streets? There'd been many murders before. And of course, all the companies across the country started making their pledges to a more equal world. Um, and I said, why are you still then getting, you know, we made all these commitments as a company to fight racism and denounce our privilege and all of these things. And I said, but, but you're sending your kids to $60,000 a year private schools while telling me I can't advocate for low income students in San Francisco. There's, this is the lie. This is the deception. And what became clear is they are loyal to party, not principle. And it was democratic party dogma to, you know, say BLM rallies were fine that summer, but anti-lockdown rallies were not. The closed schools were good. And, you know, I am loyal to principle, not party. And so I called bullshit on all of it, and I ended up losing my job because of it. It's amazing that you lasted for two years. Isn't it? (laughs) It is. Well, you know what's real? Really amazing is I actually got promoted amidst all of this, which I think is an important point. I I got promoted in October 2020 after they'd already been telling me I needed to stop because I was actually good at my job. Uh You know, I I was. I was really good at my job and I loved my job and I loved being a coach in the workplace. It was important to me. Mm. Um, We came out of COVID and lockdown strong, but ultimately they exhibited no moral courage is, you know, they were fearful that I would impact the company's reputation. That never happened. Well, now it has because I spend all my time talking about it. They they shouldn't have fired you or let you quit. I just, yeah, two years, two years. I think because I did a good job, you know, Uh I just noticed the time I got so enthralled with what you were talking about. Okay. We have to take a break. It's uh, the, Time is now, and my guest is Jennifer Say. Her book, again, is called Levi's Unbuttoned, The Woke Mob Took My Job But Gave Me My Voice. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with more wokeness and and voices. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the Terrorism Hotline. 
And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. The show today is called One Woman's Brave Fight Against the Woke Mob, and that woman is Jennifer Say. Uh, Her book is called Levi's Unbuttoned, The Woke Mob Took My Job But Gave Me My Voice. So let's um, continue with where we left off, and um, you can tell us about the general why why the woke culture and particularly the woke corporate culture is so dangerous why everybody should be concerned about this besides caring that you lost your job but why we all should be caring about this you know because it's a lie it matters the truth matters and these very wealthy executives are adopting these woke stances they're fooling the public they're fooling journalists They're being celebrated as these social justice heroes and they're grifters and they're the ones stealing the money. It's ironic. I'm called a grifter. I'm the one who gave up the money and I'm the one who keeps getting called a grifter. I think there's some very egregious examples, you know, Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, who for many, many years, well over a decade, adopted this caring sort of semi-woke stance and was on the cover of Fortune and Forbes and awarded every sort of thing you could be awarded. And meanwhile, she was making a product that didn't work, that was potentially harming people. Um, and she was defra- She was fraudulently getting money from these investors. She's now going to prison. Same with Sam Bankman fried What enabled them to do what they did was the woke stances they took. It made everybody love them. Sam Bankman fried in fact, has now you know, he wrote an email to a reporter thinking, you know, we're in on this together, saying, oh, yeah, wokeness is just something we Westerners do. So people like us. He knew it was fraudulent the entire time, but it sort of helped him evade capture. And it may very well help him evade 
you know, real scrutiny as he goes through the, the, the legal process. I mean, he's already out on bail, et cetera. Um, but I think the real thing is everyday CEOs are doing the same thing. I'll give you an example from Levi's. We laid off 10%, 15% of our workforce during COVID. Our stores were closed. Our business was tough. We said we did it with empathy. We did it in a caring way. During that same time frame, so, so the layoffs, which saved money, bolstered the stock price. The CEO collected $43 million. He cashed out $43 million in stock. Now, how dare you position yourself as a caring social justice warrior who cares about employees, some of whom are hourly wage workers, certainly no savings, and you let them go close to 1,000 people so you can collect $43 million. That is not socially just. And so that's why it matters, because it's a lie, because it is a lie, and everybody's missing the point. Um, It's a marketing strategy to make themselves look good and to feel, you know, puff up their chests and feel really good, and they're taking your money, and in the worst cases, in a criminal way. Um, And I, I really would like to see us get back. Well, the other piece is it's, For all of the companies saying that they care about inclusivity and they have all these DEI programs, it's also a lie because I expressed one opinion that veered from whatever the democratic narrative was and I was ousted. So there's certainly no viewpoint diversity that is welcome. I would argue in a lot of companies, there's no political viewpoint diversity welcome. And so you're creating this conformity and there's this censorship through this social ostracization. And, you know, just in the business context, this is really dangerous. When you can't discuss ideas, when you can't challenge bad ideas, you can't innovate, you can't get to the good ideas, you can't get to truth. I mean, in the world at large, you can't get to to the truth. Um, So I just see it as incredibly dangerous. I see it as clear First Amendment you know, violation, certainly a violation of the culture of free speech that I think enables this country to be great when we actually uphold it. So, you know, my experience was in the corporate world, but we clearly see it beyond the corporate world. You know, you write something in your book about um, how people, I guess, like these um, Gen Xers or Zers or whatever, uh, the the p- younger people coming in, um that they're that if they try to expose um the the fact that the uh ceos or the executives um try to expose them in any way i mean you kind of you sort of mentioned something about that but that they get fired um well i no i think i mean Look, this younger generation is very demanding. They expect to have their every need met. They expect every sort of um, offense be treated as a grave social injustice. And I think HR departments and corporate leaders have kind of scurried to try to kind of meet the needs of this new workforce. But it's created this incredibly censorious culture where only one viewpoint is is allowed. And yes, we've seen many examples across the, you know, university landscape where students, all they have to do is, you know, tweet something from a class and a professor gets fired. Mm -hmm. An NYU professor of organic chem got fired recently um, because he graded too hard. I mean, that's basically what they said. The grades that you're giving us don't reflect the work we put in. Well, your grade reflects a level of mastery, not how hard you worked. Right, and you're right. pre-med student. So there's just this expectation that their every demand be met. And I think that executives live in fear of that. And these are their children. 
Right. I mean, not literally, but the generation are their kids and they want to impress their own kids. They're, you know, this is the, you know, this, it's a generation of I'm your friend, not your parent. They're trying to be cool for their kids in a, in a sense. And so they're just cowing to this mob to try to seem cool. (laughs) So where do you see um, corporate corporations going in the future? I mean, since there is this, um, newer generations coming in and demanding all these things. I was reading something the other day about how they expect um, a salary of at least seventy thousand uh, dollars. You know, when they're starting. Just, yes. <laughs> um, so, where do you see like how are corporations going to exist in the future? Do you know what I mean? Where do you see like like the things that they're asking for are not realistic or or can't sustain a a profit making company. So what do you I, think is going to happen? I think, I think these leaders are going to have to screw up their courage and stand up to them. I do. I think they're going to have to tell them they need to come back to the office. In San Francisco, it has the lowest return to office rate of any city in the country. No one's come back to the office. It is degrading the corporate culture. You can't build meaningful you know, collaborative relationships on Zoom. It's terrible for the way ways of working. They need to tell them, come back to work. This is a business. If you don't want to come into the office, I'll find somebody else. There are a few CEOs who have done this. You know, the CEO of Netflix, there was a uprising of sorts from a small minority of employees um, who were objecting to Dave Chappelle's show, The Closer, being on the platform. There was supposed to be this big protest outside. It was said there would be thousands of people there. There were about 50 people there. And the CEO stood up and said, I'm not taking it off the platform. We run a lot of stuff. It's for a lot of different people because that's what makes good business sense, right? Mm -hmm. And if you don't like it, don't work here. And guess what? It was fine. So we need more people like Ted Sarandos and Daniel Eck at Spotify who did the same thing when it came to Joe Rogan and all the demands to take him off the platform. He said, people like him. They want to listen to him. I'm running a business here. And that's what I mean about being honest, about what your intentions are. The intentions of a business have never changed. The goal is to make make money. You can wrap in all the wokeness you want, but that is the that is that is the goal. And you can do that fairly and ethically. You can treat your employees well and you can pay them fair wages and create an inclusive environment. I believe in all of that stuff. You know, I came up in the corporate culture as a woman when it was not very inclusive. You know, we made a lot of progress in the 30 years I I was, um, you know, moving up the ladder. So I believe in all of that. But it is not inclusive to exclude people whose viewpoints differ this much from you, who hold different politics than you. Right. So what are you doing now? The, the $64,000 question. What have you been doing since you uh, left Levi's and what are you planning on doing? Well, I wrote the book yeah. in a fever state over the summer. So that was a lot of work, as you can imagine. Um, and I've been talking to folks like you about the book. Um, I am making a documentary film about the impact of children from the prolonged school closures. Oh, and I will tell you, the impact is pretty severe. Um, dropout rates are high, chronic absenteeism, mental health impact, learning loss, all of it. You know, we've heard of, of it in the news, but I'm, I'm seeing it and witnessing it firsthand with the families that we're featuring. And I'll finish that and then figure out if I ever want to go back into the corporate world. I, I mean, I'll admit I miss the camaraderie of being part of a team and leading a team. But for now, um, I certainly won't go back if I have to sign away my voice. 
Uh huh. You know, I wrote an op-ed about the uh, kids, the psychological impact of keeping the kids out of school. Um, you know, I also felt that we should not be doing that. Uh, and, it, and I see, you know, also in my practice, um, the impact on the kids, how they've gotten, especially, well, how the loneliness and the um, bullying, the online bullying and the um, hours that were spent playing violent video games online that are causing kids to become more violent in real life. Uh, why we're having more school shooters, for example, or mass killers in general. Um, so yes, it is. And, and, you know, there's no way for them to be able to, I mean, I'm sure in your household, you gave your children extra, uh, you supplemented what they were learning on zoom and so on. But in a lot of homes, they didn't get that. And there's no way they're going to make up those two years. And even the more privileged children um, suffer from the isolation, especially right, in those cities right, that were right. really, really, you know, shut down and closed off. I mean, in San Francisco, basketball hoops were removed, beaches were closed, skate parks were filled with sand. I mean, you were literally told to just stay home until we tell you you can come out. So, but absolutely, the more egregious harms are to the kids with less. You know, they're they're just more vulnerable. You know, I, I think ultimately, I. The truth matters. We can't progress as a society. And that's why I think there's overlap with some of the other issues you've mentioned, like, for instance, gender ideology. It's such a clear case of being asked, being told we must believe a lie. Yes. That that men are women or women can be men or that it, 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 I, I'm not going to believe a lie. I was told I had to believe that these children needed to stay home as long as possible or else everybody on earth would die. That was a lie. Lies are dangerous. And so the only thing that can combat the lies is speech. And people need to speak up. And they're too afraid. But we can do it if we do it together. Yes. That's the thing. Because I think common sense reigns in the end. And I think there are more of us than there are of them. And But this very vocal, punitive minority is silencing the rest of us. And so I hope to just provide a tiny bit of inspiration that you can do it too. Well, you certainly have more than a tiny bit. <laughs> I'd like to thank you very much for being on the show again. Uh, Jennifer Say is the guest and her book is called Levi's Unbuttoned. The woke mob took my job, but gave me my voice. So I wish you continued success with all of this. What you're doing is so important. And thank you again, and thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.